0: We will continue our study through 1 Peter. Uh, We've come to 1 Peter chapter 4. So we're going to try to get through this whole chapter today and then finish up with chapter 5 next week. Uh, 1 Peter 4 verse 1 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So right there. It says arm yourselves also. So this is a great opportunity to see the second amendment in the scripture. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> it says arm yourselves also with the same mind. So it's it's actually not talking about <laughs> weapons of man, but uh, weapons of the Lord. So arm yourself with the same mind. And the same mind is specifically talking about that mind of Christ. Okay, It was Talked about in Philippians, I believe it was um, the the mind of Christ is to place yourself lower than others, and that is the mindset that Christ had when he came to Earth. He he was a servant of all. He came not to be served but to serve, and so with that same mind, we are to arm ourselves with. So, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, the context of this verse is very important here. Uh, We know that Peter is writing to the early Christians who are suffering persecution, and further, this verse seems to be causative. So he's saying, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, But what that really means is that the reason they're suffering is because they no longer live in sin like the rest of the world does. So they suffer because they're different from the world, and the world hates that. They can't stand it. Verse 2, it says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. What he's saying is this. Those who have suffered in the flesh are those who have taken a stand for Christ, okay? If you haven't taken a stand for Christ, you likely won't be suffering in the flesh in the way that we're talking about here, for Christ's sake. So, because you are suffering, it means that you've taken a stand for something. You know, you've probably heard, like, if you don't have any enemies, you probably are not, like, taking a stand for anything. Well, that's kind of what He's talking about right here, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. If you think back to your life before you were saved, is there some things there, please don't answer out loud, but is there some things there that you wish you could go back and change? Are there times in that previous life that you know you're not proud of now, and you wish you could redeem that. But we know that we can't. So, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. That's all these things that he lists. He says, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. All of those things are the will of the Gentiles, the unsaved world. That's what their life Uh, flows toward okay they're governed by the flesh not by the spirit and that past lifetime i like that it says our past lifetime because we know we only live once you die once and you're judged but it says our past lifetime it's talking about the life you in the flesh before you became a new creation in christ So it is literally your past lifetime, like when you were a different person. It says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime. We don't want to go back to that. You've died to sin once, Romans 6. How can you go back and live in that? So leave it in the past. We have spent enough of our time there in doing the will of the Gentiles and all these things, lewdness, lust." That lust isn't talking about sexual lusts specifically, but it certainly does include that. Uh, That word is very inclusive of all kinds of fleshly lusts. Drunkenness, that doesn't need a lot of of explanation. Revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Is it funny to y'all, I think it's kind of funny that party used to be a noun, like I would go to a party, but now it's a verb. It's kind of shifted its meaning a little bit. So instead of going to a party, I am partying. You know, so that kind of shows you just like how the world takes something and just runs with it. It it twists it and gives it a new definition. And I mean, that's a very tame example, of course, but it does it with other things too. Lust drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Verse 4, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They think it's strange that you don't partake with them in all these things. Who is this guy? He doesn't enjoy getting drunk on the weekends and blacking out in his girlfriend's apartment. What What's wrong with this guy? They think it's strange. But then we'll see this word strange used again later in the chapter, and it's in a different context. It, that's kind of interesting. But they think it's strange. The unbelievers think it's strange that you act the way that you do as a believer. And I will grant them this. We are weird compared to their standards. Okay, there's... And we should be. I mean, that's not a bad thing. But since we're governed by something different than they are, we're governed by the Spirit, they're governed by the flesh, we should appear different to them. And that shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Um, Of course, it surprises them because they don't know anything of the Spirit. That's, That's completely foreign to them. And you probably had some friends before you were saved that you would go out and party with. Um, just you know, have a good time, drink a little bit, party, all all those things. And after you're saved, you didn't want to just like slough them off, act like you didn't even enjoy their company anymore. I mean, that's not really showing the love of Christ to them. But you also don't want them to infect you with what you've already had. The only reason that you really keep yourself around those people is so that you infect them with what you have, which is Christ. So, and that can be a struggle, and I've struggled with that. Um, Just kind of weighing in my mind the impact that they might have on me and the impact that I might have on them in determining like how much time I'm going to spend with these people who I know are not believers. And so that's something that you really have to work out for yourself Uh, I can't tell you to hang around them all the time, and I'm not going to tell you to just leave them in the dust. So um, leave that to yourself and uh, pray about it and let the Spirit kind of stir you in the direction that you need to go. It says, speaking evil of you. Now, since you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation, they will speak evil of you. And we saw this phrase used a couple chapters ago, I believe it was, but it's just saying that these people, these unbelievers, don't respect you for what you're doing. I mean, they will speak evil of you. You remember Nero burned down Rome from like the side effects of his uh, Circus Maximus, I believe it was, and he actually blamed the Christians for that, even though it was completely his fault. Um, he blamed the Christians. So he spoke of them as evildoers way back then. And even today, I mean, you you hear people speaking of Christians as evildoers. Uh, Canada is a really good example of a, a modern thing that's going on. You see all these church burnings. You see the outlawing of certain passages in Romans. Uh, so pastors can't teach these things which are biblical, but are now being labeled as hate speech. They're speaking evil of us. Verse 5 says, They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So this looks kind of weird to us right off the bat. Uh, It says they will give an account to him, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Um, It also says in verse 6, for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. Now, the grammar says the gospel was preached also to those who are now dead. So this is not the gospel being preached to dead people. Okay, the gospel was preached to them while they were living. They are now dead in this writing. So it's, it's not speaking of any chance of salvation after death. Okay, your chance for salvation is here in this life. And you've been presented with the gospel, and you have two choices. You accept the gospel, you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you don't. Okay, and that determines your eternal destiny. And it's, it's nothing after death that determines your your destiny. But they are simply dead when Peter is writing this, so he refers to them as those who are dead. So for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So while they were living, uh, no doubt if they accepted Christ, they were judged by men for that, you know, and, and that's fine, And we'll see later that the sufferings on the world um, are the ill that we get as believers. But since we have suffered in the world, uh, we do get comfort eternally. And it's the other way around for non-believers. So they have their comfort in the world. And all those things that Peter just listed off, the drunkenness, revelries, uh, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, that is their comfort in the world. And then their suffering will come in the next life eternally. So it's, you know, <laughs> there's there's no sugarcoating it, really. I mean, you end up in one of two places, and it's determined by whether or not you accept Christ or not. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but... Even being judged by men in the flesh, they will live according to God in the Spirit. Verse 7, he says, But the end of all things is at hand. You might be thinking, wasn't this written like 2,000 years ago or so? Yes, it was. (laughs) And um, even back then, he was saying, But the end of all things is at hand. And Jesus even preached while he was here that his coming would be soon. So what do we make of this? Well, I would say his coming is still soon, and it's sooner than it was back then. So why does he write this? Is it, is it just something cool to write down? You know, it's, it's fun to think about. Well, no, it should be affecting how we live. The Bible is not some instruction book that you take out of the package, toss away, and try to figure out how to put this thing together yourself. Okay? It should be effectual for our everyday lives. And this is one of those things that we can easily throw out, disregard its importance, and not think about it. But the end of all things is at hand. I believe that at any moment, Christ could come, could take the believers away, and we will be with him for eternity. We don't want to be caught with our pants down. You know what I mean? I would love to be up here when Christ comes back or, you know, anywhere else serving him. But what I don't want to be caught in is sin. I don't want him to come back, rapture me up, and, <laughs> you know, you think about the, the rapture and uh, all of the believers being gone from the world, the salt of the earth being gone. Um, You don't want to be that believer that gets raptured out of your girlfriend's bedroom. You know what I mean? Everybody for all eternity is going to be making fun of you. That's the guy that, you know, I'm kidding, of course, but, but we don't want that, right? So we want to live each day like truly it is our last. And I will say this too. The end is near. And for some of us, it's nearer than others. But for all of us, it's near, you know, probably like 80 years at best. If Jesus doesn't come back, you're going to him. One of the two is going to happen, and it's going to happen fairly quickly. So live each moment as if it was your last. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, so keeping that in mind, do this. Be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, this serious, uh, when translated literally, means sober-minded. We don't want our prayers to be clouded. We don't want our mind to be clouded when we are praying. So be sober-minded. Now, a frantic mind doesn't really help anything. You know, we see a lot of people getting all frantic right now, uh, but we have a root in Christ. So we know that Well, we know the creator of all things, and we already know how it's going to end. So there's no reason for us to get frantic about anything, really. Um, We have that solid foundation. So be serious, be sober-minded, and watchful. This watchful means to be calm and collected in spirit. So again, we're, we're not to be frantic. Uh, We do need more of this today, and um, especially in our prayer lives. It's good to take in a situation, look at it objectively, and bring it to the Lord. I mean, that's a good thing. And of course, you can come to God broken down, wherever you are. You know, come as you are. But um, in this case, He is admonishing these believers to be sober, of sober mind, and to be watchful, calm, and collected in spirit. In your prayers, specifically. In verse 8, he says, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. So above everything else comes love. You know, if you have not love, you've become as a clanging symbol. And we're about to talk about these spiritual gifts, well, do you remember? Um, I believe it was Paul writing. He said that I can exercise all of these gifts, like I I can speak in tongues, like I can serve, I can do all of these things, I can teach. But if I have not love, then all of that is as a clinging symbol. It's there for just a second, and then it fades away real quick. So above all of those things, love. He says, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, this love is the agape love of Christ. How do you get this love? Well, it's not man-made. Okay, you can't go to Walmart and pick some agape up. It comes from God, who is love. He has demonstrated this agape love to us already in the most perfect way, which is the sacrifice of his son. He expected nothing from us, and he gave everything to us. That is agape love. It's a self-sacrificing love. And you can't strain to get more of it. You can't work at it. But if you're filled with the Spirit, this sacrificial love can be demonstrated through you. The source is always God, but we can be conduits of this love to the world around us. And that's something important that we do as a believer. We know in 1 John, one of the ways that you can know that you are saved is if you love your brethren, and brethren specifically being other Christians. So if you love other Christians with this self-sacrificial agape love, then you can have assurance that you're saved. Now, um, this love will co- cover a multitude of sins. Can you imagine how much gossip there would be in the church if everybody actually did this? If they let their love cover the sins of others? There wouldn't be much gossip. I mean, little to know. It's interesting to think about because, I mean, we, we don't do this all the time. There's always some kind of something going through the grapevine. But if we did this, we would not have to worry about gossip. If you remember uh, back in Genesis, um, it was Noah who got drunk and he lay in his tent naked. And his sons came in. One of them came in and I stared at him in a creepy way. And the other two came in, kind of backed into the tent, and covered up his nakedness. Okay, Their love covered up Noah's sin. And that is an interesting picture for us today because it's very similar to this idea of love covering a multitude of sins. Now, the love that God had, the Father, and the love that Jesus had, exhibited while he was on earth that washed away our sins it flung them from us as far as the east is from the west but our love for one another can cover the sin now that's not the same okay jesus his sacrifice was propitiatory that just means that he made that sacrifice in our place so that we didn't have to Now, the love that you show in covering someone else's sin is not propitiatory. It does not cover their sin in the same way that Jesus has covered their sin once and for all. Okay, so it's a slightly different construct here, but still, if I slip up sometime, I wouldn't want everyone on me about it. I would want a good friend, a brother in Christ, to cover that with his love. So love will cover a multitude of sins. Verse nine, it says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Some people are more gifted with hospitality than others. Uh, You can show up to some people's houses and just feel right at home. You know, you walk in, they got a candle going, they're cooking dinner for you. Like you just feel welcomed. And other people, uh, you walk into their house and you're just kind of uncomfortable. And so I definitely can see some people being more blessed with hospitality than others. But this word, be hospitable, it's really saying use hospitality, which is interesting. So if you're gifted with hospitality, use it, and don't grumble about it. So use hospitality uh, to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. William McRae Defines a spiritual gift as a divine endowment of special ability for service upon a member of the body of Christ. Okay, so we know that we're all gifted in different things, and you can have a a very wide range of combinations of these gifts, um, but each believer is given a gift to serve Christ with, right? So it says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. If you're gifted with hospitality, use it for, for the good of Christ. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. This is interesting that uh, Peter connects the grace of God to these spiritual gifts. And it would have been a very natural connection for him to make, and all Greeks, because in the Greek language, Charisma is the word for spiritual gifts. That first part of charisma, charis, that is the word grace in Greek. And so it literally is built into the word for spiritual gifts, this idea of grace. So a very natural connection for sure, but it should also affect how we approach these spiritual gifts. We should not approach them In demanding for certain gifts, yes, we are told to desire the best gifts, and that's a good thing. Desire them. Ask for God to grant you these certain gifts that you can use to serve Him, but we do not do that in a demanding way because it is as the manifold grace of God, that is why we even have a spiritual gift to begin with. So it's not our place to demand something when we haven't done anything to earn it anyways. And I think that's very fair. Um, the free gift that was extended to us, which is salvation, we've done nothing to deserve that. And it's only by that that God can extend these spiritual gifts to us. So come to him humbly and desire the best gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12:31, Paul says, "Earnestly desire the best gifts." So it's it's a good thing to ask God to bestow these things on you, uh, but it in no way obligates him to do so. Okay? It's only by his grace that he does. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of quick references to other parts in the Bible that talk about spiritual gifts, just for your own study. But these are not exhaustive, just a few quick ones. So you can read about the the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and here in 1 Peter 4. And in Ephesians 4, 7, it says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift in reference to these spiritual gifts. So even Paul in Ephesians connects grace to the spiritual gifts. And in verse 11, it says, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, remember back when we started 1 Peter, I told you there was a lot of similarities between 1 Peter and Ephesians, which shows us uh, very plainly the the mind of the Holy Spirit in effectually um, bringing these two guys together in spirit. So if the Holy Spirit has inspired this book that we call the Bible, then we should see similar themes throughout it. And the specific language that is extremely similar between First Peter and Ephesians, uh, written by two different men at two different times, so Ephesians written by Paul and First Peter written by Peter, it shows us that these guys were in sync. And we know that they couldn't have been in sync Um of their own ability, but it was by that inspiration of the Spirit that they are writing. I mean, very similar things. Now, look at this. We we saw a couple of examples earlier in the book, but this verse eleven in First Peter four is very similar to Ephesians three twenty one. It says, "To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever." Amen. Now look at the second part of verse 11 here in First Peter. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Very interesting. Um, if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. So what do we do? We give it our best and we commit the rest. Okay? You can't stretch yourself further than what God has gifted you for. Um, it'll just... I mean, really, it'll result in burnout and um, this straining that we really don't need. So give it your best, commit the rest. Um, Jesus does say that his burden is light. And when we're trying to stretch ourselves past what we're gifted to do, that does not feel like a, a light burden to us. But if we are... Within what we are gifted to do, we are serving with all of our might in that area. It is a light burden. Um, He will gift you to do what he's called you to do. I promise that it would be more difficult for me to teach the kids in Sunday school uh, than who is over there right now. Uh, And I think Karen's probably over there. But same with Beth and Summer. They are better with the kids than I would be. And it's probably easier for me to be up here talking to y'all than for some of y'all to be up here. And that's just the way it goes. And I'm not going to say that one is more important than the other. We need somebody to teach the kids. Jesus told the kids to come to him. Like The kids are very important. So some gifts are given to some. Some are not given to you. You know, it's, uh, it is as God wills. Verse 12, it says, Beloved, do not think it strange. Here we have that same word strange. Concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. As though some strange thing happened to you. He's assuming that these people he's writing to do think that it's strange that they're suffering in this fiery trial. Um, the language really can be read as stop thinking it's strange. So he was assuming that they were. He's saying, well, cut it out. It's not strange. Like, get over it. Like, this is what you've been given. This fiery trial. So don't think it's strange. Um, Sometimes I think it's strange, but I'm going to stop thinking it's strange. As though some strange thing happened to you. Um, But... So instead of thinking it's strange that you're having to suffer for Christ, instead of that, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Now, this fiery trial, uh, the word for that is found in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, We know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and some Aramaic Well, the Greeks during their time translated that text into their own language. And so we can get an idea of what they thought of certain passages in the Old Testament simply by how they translated those into their own language. So uh, this word fiery trial is in the Septuagint, the same word for furnace. So for example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the furnace, which was this word for fiery trial. So again, we're getting back to this example of gold being heated up in a, in a furnace, a fiery trial for us. And the impurities rise to the top. It's always easy to see where we're lacking when we're heated up, when we're stressed. And then those impurities can be gathered easily. They can be scooped off the top of that gold and discarded of. What you're left with is a more pure product than you began with. So these fiery trials, which try us, work in the same way as heating up this gold in a furnace. They refine us. They refine our faith. So don't think it's strange that you're tossed into the furnace, is basically what he's saying. And uh, much before this, like several chapters before this, he's been... Hammering on Christ as the example of this suffering. Christ did not deserve the suffering that he got. And then that is our example how he suffered. He suffered silently, and he suffered um, without being guilty. That's the example that we are to follow in suffering for Christ. It says, But rejoice. I don't want to rejoice when I'm suffering. That's the last thing I want to do in my flesh. But we know that that is what we are called to do. So we have to discipline ourselves into that. Okay, the disciples did it. They rejoiced that they were counted uh, worthy to suffer for Christ. Uh, Back in verse 4, we saw that unbelievers thought it was strange. The same word used in verse 12. That you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. So you don't do the same things that they do. But here in verse 12, Peter is telling us as believers to stop thinking that this suffering is strange, Uh, namely this fiery trial. And we know that this fiery trial, in Peter's context and in the very literal context that he was writing this letter to other Christians. This fiery trial was um, speaking of the persecutions of Nero. And Nero had burned Rome, like I'd mentioned earlier, but Peter knew that that persecution was going to spread from the heart of the Roman Empire, Rome itself, into its provinces. So the, the Christians in those provinces are being warned. They're saying, don't think it's strange when this spreads into your area. Like, it's coming so get ready for it. Um, And so that's a very literal uh, interpretation, but even for Christians today, um, it is the fiery trial of special persecution. There will come times in your life when you wonder, why in the world is this happening to me? Have I been bad? Have I been in sin? Not, well, maybe, not necessarily. The suffering does not tell you that you've been living in sin, it's, it's not something strange. It's going to happen to Christians. Because Christ has suffered, we can look to him as an example of how we should h- handle this suffering as well. So don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial of special persecution, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, in, the, in this verse and in verse 14, Peter uses much of the same language that he heard Jesus use when he talked about suffering for him. Back in Luke 6, and 23, Jesus says, Blessed are you when men hate you. So that blessed, that's the same word that uh, Peter uses here says, blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. Rejoice. So we see rejoice in both. In verse 14, he says, if you're reproached, oh, sorry, this is back in first Peter 14, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. Blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, in Luke 6, he says, blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you. Uh, the reproached in First Peter 4.14 and the revile in Luke 6 is the same word. So, and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But rejoice that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Uh, So in verse 13, it says that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, I understand that I may be glad when Jesus comes back and ends my suffering. And then I know I'll be joyful. What's difficult is to be joyful now for that same reason. It's more difficult because it hasn't come yet. You know, you feel the furnace being turned up to eleven are like, oh, I love this. It's so hot in here, and I'm being melted and purified. What a great time. <laughs> That's difficult, okay? And in telling you all this, I'm not saying that I've graduated from Suffering 101, okay? I'm still in class, um, as I'm sure most of you are too. But it's something that we can work toward, and we know that God has given us the capacity to rejoice in sufferings. We know that. So we need to discipline ourselves into this and ask for that fresh filling of the Spirit, that grace, so that we can endure these trials. That's what it comes down to. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This word reproached just means chided, taunted, or railed at. Have you ever been railed at? Probably by your wife. (laughs) But if you are railed at, you're chided for Christ's sake, then blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This phrase rests upon you is the same language that Jesus used when he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Okay, that give you rest is the same phrase, and it's just a word in the Greek, uh, but we have to translate it into a phrase. Uh, It says that the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So literally, the Spirit gives you rest. The Spirit rests you. And that is extremely comforting, that when you are at rock bottom in these sufferings for Christ that you will be refreshed. You will be rested by the Spirit. And you may be able to even look back on a time in your life when you've experienced that. When you've been at the bottom, you have run out of resources in the world. And miraculously, it seems, you're refreshed and you're able to continue on By the work of the Spirit. Interesting to think about. Blessed are you for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, I want to turn your attention to 1 John 3, verses 11 through 14. In this, John gives us an example of how the world hates what is good. And it's exactly what we've been talking about here in 1 Peter, but he uses Cain and Abel as this example of the world hating what is good. John says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, the Poneros one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. So Cain hated his brother because Abel did good because his sacrifice was acceptable to God. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He says, do not marvel, my brethren. Don't think it's strange if the world hates you. See, we are fundamentally different. We follow a different set of rules than those in the world. So don't think it's strange if they don't like you. It makes perfect sense. So he says, on their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. So they are blaspheming the name of Christ, but you are bringing glory to him. Uh, On your part, he is glorified if you suffer well, if you suffer reproach for the name of Christ. 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, Or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. I think it's interesting that he included that in that list. He groups busybodies in with murderers, thieves, evildoers. Oh, and and busybodies and other people's matters. So that that term for busybodies and other people's matters um, is speaking of a self-appointed overseer in someone else's life. Uh, The important thing is self-appointed. They didn't ask you to oversee their lives. So we get this idea of kind of like a person that just kind of inserts themselves into every situation that they can. And you probably know somebody like that. Uh, but as Christians, we don't want to suffer as these things. Yet, if anyone does suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So when you do suffer, and you will, we are to glorify God in our sufferings. Uh, Let him not be ashamed. We know that God is not ashamed to be our god. And he doesn't say, well, since I'm god and I did say that they could come if they wanted to, I guess I'll I'll have to take them. That's not how it is at all. No, he welcomes us with open arms. He's not ashamed to be our god. In Hebrews 11:16 it says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their god, for he has prepared a city for them. Paul in Romans 1.16, says that he is not ashamed of the gospel. So God's not ashamed of us. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Are we ashamed when someone asks if we're Christians? Do you hesitate a second? And again, you don't have to answer this. Just think about it. Do you hesitate when somebody asks you if you're a Christian? Well, I mean, what what kind of Christian are we talking about here? Like, uh, uh. Are you ashamed of your God? Now, if anyone should be ashamed in this relationship, it should not be us. If anyone was to be ashamed, God should be ashamed of us. Yet we know that he's not. So let none of you suffer as a murderer, all of these things. Yet, if you do suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Because we serve a good God, who is not ashamed of us, but let him glorify God in this matter. 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. This judgment beginning at the house of God, just means that God is going to begin his judgment at his house, and that is the church. Okay, an interesting parallel in Ezekiel nine 16. I'll read that real quick. He says, Utterly slay old and young men, maidens, and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So it's the same idea of judgment beginning at the house of God. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, that's another way we can know that he's talking about the church because he refers. To this house of God as us. So, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? If the righteous one is scarcely saved, this is a very specific construct in the original language. Peter's just saying that the righteous are saved with difficulty. Okay, that's literally what it means. The righteous was, were saved with difficulty. Um, the price that God paid to redeem us is unimaginable to us. We cannot fully comprehend that price. It was with great difficulty that you were bought. The person sitting next to you is the most valuable person in the universe. Each one of us, We're saved through difficulty. And if you don't think it was difficulty, read through the gospel. I mean, you will see the suffering of Christ, how he was reproached by men. He suffered on the earth, and then he suffered on the cross. And that was this immense price that was paid for us. So if we were saved through such difficulty, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear. Well, we know from other scriptures that the ungodly and the sinner will appear at the great white throne for judgment. And if it was so difficult, if through such great strife, we were saved, it's our job to scatter the seeds that those unbelievers might come to the same salvation that we have. And of course, we can't make them believe. None of us can make anyone else believe the gospel of Christ. But what we can do is plant the seed in someone's life that when watered, when cared for, may sprout into this faith in Christ. So we scatter the seeds. Only God brings the increase. And... Truly, we were, we were called to this. We were called to scatter these seeds. Um, because if it was so difficult, if it took such a great deal of effort, suffering, to save us, the unbeliever has no chance. They can't pay the same price that Jesus paid. They just can't do it. So with such difficulty, we were saved. Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, so in light of the things that we just talked about, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to the faithful creator. This word commit is actually a banking term, and it's speaking of something like a deposit. So you commit your paycheck to the bank for safekeeping in the same way that you commit your souls to him. You commit your soul to God for safekeeping until the end when you finally get the the interest on that. You get this inheritance of eternal life. So we, we commit our souls to him in doing good. So that's how you commit your souls to him in doing good. Um, we know that the actions are a mark of true faith. So active faith is going to look like something. You're saved by grace through faith. But your actions are a testament to that faith. So by doing good, by committing your souls to him as to a faithful creator, therefore, let us suffer. So in light of all these things, um, committing ourselves to him as a faithful creator, we are able to endure these sufferings. Now, I was watching the second Star Wars this week, and um, Anakin came back to Tatooine to try to find his mom. And he met C-3PO for the first time in a long time. And it was funny um, because in watching this, this verse popped into my mind. Um, Committing your soul to him as to a faithful creator. Anakin walks up to C-3PO, and C-3PO is like, Hello, how may I be of service to you? My name is C and then Anakin finishes his name for him, 3PO. He knew him. Now, C3PO was kind of taken aback by this and just a second later, he recognized Anakin. He said, what do you say? The maker. The maker. He recognized Anakin as the person who had created him. And then immediately he was committing himself to Anakin. So he recognized him as his maker, his creator, and he recommitted himself to his service. I thought it was interesting. And, you know, it's, it's a, an example. It's not exactly uh, how we commit ourselves to Christ, but um, I thought it was useful for kind of getting this picture of committing yourself to someone as a faithful creator. Uh, We have this tie to God. He created us in his image. And that is the most precious image, uh, in the image of his son, in the likeness of him. So we're going to go through a real quick uh, rehashing of verses 12 through 19. Okay, a summary and to wrap us up today. So we get some points from Peter, about how we should react to these special trials, these fiery furnaces. First, in verse 12, we know that we should expect trials. Don't think it's strange if, if you're tried in the fiery furnace. Trials are not strangers in the Christian life, but they are to be expected. And trials that are the will of God are not warnings that we are disobeying him like old Job's friends thought. Uh, They thought wrongly. But they are God's tools for perfecting his children. So these trials are sanctifying us. Second thing, in verses 13 and 14, we should rejoice in trials. Okay? So don't think it's strange, but rejoice in these trials. Uh, And it's difficult to do, uh, but it can be done. The suffering that we endure now is nothing but a prelude to the glory that we will share at his coming. Furthermore, the spirit of God will rest on us with refreshing power upon the suffering of the unbeliever. Um, When these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, went into the fiery furnace, they had faith that God would protect them. And not only did he protect them, but he walked in that fire with them. An interesting picture for us. Third thing, verses 15 through 16, we see that we should not be ashamed in trials. Job's friends were trying to make him ashamed. Uh, They were trying to guilt trip him into admitting some uh, hidden sin that he had committed. Well, he didn't do such a thing. So he didn't admit to it. They were trying to make him ashamed in his trials. But that's not what we're called to do. We're we're called to not be ashamed in trials, verses 15 and 16. Now, fourth thing, verses 17 and 18, we are to be a witness for Christ in our trials. When you're being heated up in the furnace, there are unbelievers who are watching how you react to that. And they're taking notes. And so if they see you handling that well in a Christ-like fashion, that is an awesome witness to those people. They will see that. They'll see um, your calm, your cool, collected, uh, your sober-mindedness, and that will be a testament to Christ who lives in you. So be a witness in trials. Lastly, in verse 19, Commit yourself to God, simply. Um, God sends the fiery trial to burn away the dross in our lives, uh, in ourselves, really, uh, the impurities. And we commit ourselves to him for safekeeping, that banking term, commit. Uh, We deposit ourselves to him for safekeeping, and that's a pretty safe bet. I mean, we know that he cannot fail us. And we can be sure that he will pay interest on our deposit. But we do commit ourselves in doing good. That is, we commit ourselves to God as we obey his word. And this is not a one-time thing. Every day you wake up and you surrender yourself to Christ. It's a daily an hourly surrender of what you want for what Christ has told you he wants. We are living to please him and to serve him. So that is what we've seen in 1 Peter 4. Uh, So don't be ashamed. Don't, Don't be caught by surprise when sufferings come your way. Rather rejoice in them, And rejoice that you've been counted worthy to suffer for Christ, because you will be blessed for that. And in those sufferings, the Spirit will rest on you and will provide you with rest. Um, That is a, a wonderful admonishment to us as we go into this next week. Let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed.